I'm not sure exactly where Venerable Chodron is in the world tonight, but she's not here, so I'll be doing the teaching. So we'll begin with the motivation. Karma literally means action and refers to sentient beings' intentional physical, verbal, and mental actions. Our actions matter. They not only influence others in this life, but also result in our own experiences in this and future lives. Results of our actions depend on our intentions. In that actions done with a virtuous intention brings happy results. And those motivated by non-virtuous intentions bring unpleasant results. Human intelligence makes us particularly qualified to discriminate between constructive and destructive, beneficial and harmful, what to practice and what to abandon. Animals do not have such discriminative wisdom. As human beings, simply surviving or seeking a healthy, happy life is not fully making use of our potential. We must look deeper and ask, how did this human being, me, come into existence? How can I make my life meaningful? What happens after I die? This leads us to investigate causality, both the external systems of cause and effect detailed in science and the internal system of cause and effect, the law of karma and its effects. These two systems are harmonious and we can look to see if there is any contradiction between the laws of nature, scientific findings on Darwinian evolution, and the law of karma and its effects. Effects arise from causes and cannot arise without causes. A tree grows from a seed and cannot grow without a seed. Causes are impermanent because the arising of an effect necessitates the cessation of the cause. The seed ceases and changes into a sprout and then a tree. Effects must be concordant with their causes. Only a specific cause can produce a specific result. Pine trees grow from pine seeds, not from daisy seeds. Furthermore, one cause alone cannot produce an effect. Cooperative conditions are needed. The seed grows into a tree only when there is sufficient water, fertilizer, and heat. We can see the specific causes of many external things. However, if we search for the causes of those causes and the causes of those causes, going back to the origin of this universe, we will not be able to pinpoint precisely each and every cause and condition. 
Although the details of all the causes of the Big Bang are too vast and complex for us to understand, we would not feel right saying that the universe arose without causes. We know that its development follows particular laws of nature, certain systematic ways of growth and decay, even though we may not be able to discern each unique cause and condition. Similarly, on the internal level, sentient beings' experiences of happiness and suffering arise from preceding causes and conditions. Secular society usually traces these to genetic or environmental factors and does not consider the law of karma and its effects. Bringing in the ethical dimension of our mental intentions gives us a fuller picture of both sentient beings' experiences and the environment they inhabit. As a natural process that functions, whether or not a person believes in it, the law of karma and its effects was not created by the Buddha. Nor does the Buddha judge people according to their actions and punish or reward them. When someone suffers from illness in which their unwholesome karma plays a causal role along with other factors, it does not mean that they deserve to suffer or that they made themselves sick. Nor should we ignore those who are injured or oppressed by unjust social structures, thinking that helping them would interfere with their karma. This is a poor excuse for our lack of compassion. Needless to say, those holding such attitudes create destructive karma themselves. All the actions that we do, we do with the wish to make our lives happy and free of suffering. If we can extend that wish to make the lives of all sentient beings happy and free of suffering, then we have set ourselves on the path of the Bodhisattva and upon the path to Buddhahood. Causes and conditions, cause and effect. Because this happened, that happened. Because I did this, that will be the outcome. The outcome I want is happiness. In order to create the causes for this, I need to fill in the blank. That the motivation was mostly Venerable Children's, but some of it was mine too. So, so we're going over the six far-reaching attitudes, and this is a participatory event tonight. The more you participate, the better it will be, and the better I will feel. So we're going to go continue on the far, six far-reaching attitudes. Last week we did generosity. This week we will do ethical conduct. Of course, the other ones are fortitude, joyous effort, concentration, and wisdom. And then the six far-reaching attitudes, because these are what the bodhisattvas practice in order to become Buddhas. They're called the bodhisattvas. And tonight will be the bodhisattvas practice of ethical conduct. And we've been looking at these six far-reaching attitudes with the question of 
What kind of new ways do we have of creating destructive karma in this world today? So we reviewed the teachings, and we basically went over and did a very good job of hashing out killing, stealing, unwise sex- and unwise unwise and unkind sexual conduct, lying, divisive speech. However, the next ones we have not really fully explored, so that's what we're going to do tonight. What is the next one in that line of succession? Harsh speech. And then? Idle talk. And then? Covetousness, which actually leads to attachment. And the next one is? <laughs> Melissa's thoughts, yep, which leads basically to anger. And the last one, wrong views, which would lead to ignorance. Okay, so my first question would be wrong views. Do wrong views just apply to Buddhists? No. So we'll, I'll take up that. So, um, do we have more opportunities to find wrong views in this world today than they did 2,600 years ago? I don't know the answer. I'm just asking the question. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> yes, we definitely invite them to participate also. Well, you know, His Holiness keeps saying that, you know, we've got the same minds as they had back then. I think we're just, uh, I think with technology and just the fact that we, we know each other better and know e- about each other better, I think it looks like we've got more wrong views, but they might be about the same. So what are the wrong views according to Buddhism? Karma, yep. Karma does not exist. Sorry, you're ex- absolutely correct. Next. <laughs> okay, good. Good. What else? Nothing exists inherently. View of self doesn't his- exist inherently. I'll buy that one. What else? Samsara is nirvana. Okay, and uh, what about rebirth? Okay, so what in the world today are we seeing any wrong views by what we're going to classify as Buddhists that we can think of? That ignorance, anger, and attachment are the causes for happiness. Okay, how how are Buddhists showing I'm, that? Well, I, I'm showing it or seeing it. So either or. Well, what I'm what I'm what I'm seeing in myself and seeing it in the world right now is that people want to be happy, but it seems like what they're doing is they have an awful lot of attachment and greed and anger, hoping to get happiness, and that doesn't seem to be jiving, and they're not happy. Yeah. What about the crisis going on in Myanmar? The Buddhist monks there that are advocating violence against the Rohingyas. That, that one just jumps right out at me. What about the fundamental Bo- fundamentalist Buddhists, which there are in the world? They uh, advocate exactly what the Buddha taught. I, and then what I mean by that is they won't go beyond what they've been taught. 
They won't look at the science that has been brought into Buddhism these days. Or women's rights, yes. What else? Yes. Spiritual teachers that abuse their powers. Yeah. What about... Um, I read recently about a Buddhist temple that was amassing just fortunes, big time. Yeah. Is that the way the Buddha taught? I agree with you, totally. But it seems to me, if, if they've got... I'm, I'm looking at like websites that are saying, you know, send us money to, to do this. For, we'll do this for you. Is that what the Buddha taught? I mean, the whole relationship between the the sangha and the laity was always that the Buddha, the the dharma was to be shared freely, and then the reciprocal relationship was that if the laity really felt touched by what they heard, that they would supply the requisites so that the sangha could continue to study and share the dharma. But it was all reciprocal. It was all voluntary. It was all out of the generosity of taking delight in giving. So if you're for you know, nineteen ninety nine, we'll do something you know, dharma for you. That kind of loses the the purity of the generosity of the giving, unless of course we don't know what the motivations mm-hmm. are. I'll buy that. It's a gray area. Okay, so let's not look at just specifically Buddhists. Like the what about rebirth? You know, rebirth is we we've been taught that rebirth is in the Buddhist teachings, and yet. Venerable Chodron tells us the story about a meeting she went to with a lot of Dharma teachers. And the question was asked, how many of you actually believe in rebirth? And less than half of them said that they did. And that's, <laughs> that's kind of big. <laughs> yeah. And again, what about the Dharma teachers that are lay teachers that require funds to survive. Yeah. I'm not saying that's a wrong view in itself, but, but it can lead to that, couldn't it? Wrong views are specifically denying something that exists or, um, or exaggerating. A, um, Say something that exists that doesn't. Denigrating and, you know, where you assert something exists that doesn't exist or you deny something that does exist. So... I think, you know, typically the examples that are given are when you either deny that rebirth exists, deny that Buddhas exist, uh, deny past and future lives, uh, deny even the Four Noble Truths, um, or you propound something like a truly existent person. Mm -hmm. So those are typically the examples given about wrong views. So it seems like we're moving into a little bit of a gray area when we're talking about other ethical... uh, Slides that so maybe we can put it in in another category. Yeah, okay, that'll work. Okay, so let's go on. The next one we want to look at is malicious thoughts. What are nowadays happenings that bring malicious thoughts? What in your life can bring malicious thoughts? I might, uh, for for many years, I harbored ill will towards someone who I believed had hurt me, and so it wasn't until I started meditating on compassion and karma that I was able to look at it in a different way 
but um, certainly even even in smaller ways, when I get irritated, I sometimes ruminate on irritation for a while. It becomes a <laughs> becomes a daily meditation. So that can also happen too, um, and uh, it's important to apply the antidotes. But that's an example or two about how that can happen. Yes, absolutely. The com- comments on the internet some, from some of the articles, especially in politics, they start they start ripping people apart big time, and they get very nasty, really nasty. Yeah. What about the um, trolling? I mean, we're, we're talking about the actual thoughts that start the action, but what about video games? Just politics in general. <laughs> We obviously have a, big, a, a vast, more vast repertoire or environment to um, see the politicians in action nowadays than they did back in Buddhist times because I'm not sure how many politicians that the, the ordinary person actually saw during their lifetime. Yeah. And we have a, the ability to communicate back and forth with them. Sports. In what way? Sports plus alcohol often, but that can lead to a lot of violence, uh, especially if people get very attached to their particular team. So you're talking about the fans of sports, not the sports teams themselves. Well, the sports themselves too. The players can develop hatred for the other team, the other side, and they can cheat and cause injury on purpose. Yep. So how do we as Buddhists guard ourselves against these malicious thoughts? A question. The thought, the thought occurred to me about WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks. So, WikiLeaks. Yeah. So would that be an example of like um, harsh speech or would that be an example of ill will? Or, I mean, where would, that, where, would, where would we categorize that? That, that's a good question. Um, I, I can't speak for the person who owns WikiLeaks or even, um, you know, uses them. But there ha- I, I think there would have to be both. I guess it depends you're trying on to get okay, uh, someone's trying to get the information out that they think is wrong, but in the process they absolutely know that it's going to hurt somebody. And it depends also. I think if they do it out of they addictiveness or anger or retaliation or something like that and yes. that influences whether or not their action is or even if it's uh, that, what, what they think is their own from their own viewpoint they think this is the way it's the way it's supposed to be done this is this is going to help my cause so I'll buy that so we'll ask the question again how do we as Buddhists guard ourselves against malicious thoughts one of my preventative um, medicines is to try and see the kindness of others. Yes. So when I'm having, starting to have some difficulty with somebody's, it's usually around an opinion or some kind of behavior, is that I always try to see, well, what, what within their framework, what do they do to contribute to the well-being of the world, the, the harmony of the community, the, my own, you know, how do they contribute to, to benefiting me? So it's a, but I have to, I have to use it as a preventative. It's hard to use it after I've gotten myself pretty stirred up. So it's definitely a preventative medicine for me. Online says that 
One thing I have to keep remembering that whatever I see any of us doing, we're doing it thinking it will bring happiness. And also that I have the same seeds in my mind stream. Mm -hmm. I'm very familiar with malice. And usually it's an enemy image that I have. Enemy image, yeah. And also the, the things that I say to myself about them. Yes. That is generally negative. And if I can catch that, then I can protect it. Sometimes I don't really want to. I agree totally. <laughs> um, there was times I kind of humored myself that if I'm just thinking a negative thought, malicious thought, that it's not really hurting anyone. But um, that's wrong. <laughs> yeah. Because it usually leads to action or, or speech. And it, it really hurts me. <laughs> I'm miserable when those thoughts are running around in my head. And so... Um, just remembering that I'm really suffering when I let those go on. I think three months Vajrasattva retreat really allows one to really deeply examine the ten. And so you get time to look at, mm -hmm. you know, malice and apply the four opponent powers and make promises, you know, to oneself that we don't head in that direction. Yes. Maybe a meditation to help calm your mind, keep it calm. And rejoicing maybe. I found over the years that if I purify that particular negative propensity, that it actually diminishes and lessens the habit to have that kind of mind. Mm -hmm. So to be able to use it as the purification practice as part of getting that kind of tamed down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yep. The uh, political arena um, kind of charges things up for me in my mind sometimes. And... Um, I think, um, like, I have contact with people who think very diff different politically than I do, and it's kind of easy to go into a angry place about them, and it helps if I can have compassion for them and, and caring and, and just think of the wrong view piece of it, that it's possible they have wrong views knowing that I have wrong views at times, too. <laughs> and, and it kind of takes the... Uh, it's easy to do it in a general way, like, oh, those people, you know? But when I'm face-to-face -face with someone, it's easier to... And, and we're not... Uh, and, of course, there's that uh, piece about nonviolent communication that I think can, can help get through that sometimes. I've been trying to work with that a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, when you feel like there's an impasse, you almost can't talk to each other because you're so much in opposition. You know, to find a spot where you can connect with your with your uh, humanity and what people are feeling. You know, their aspir their, their aspirations. What's you know going that way? And I think we've gotten to the. I don't know if we've ever been to a place, but I. Uh, where we're not projecting anger out and we're looking at our own anger, you know. Um, um, I think maybe it's gotten worse where people just want to not examine their own minds as much and just dump all the, all the stuff <laughs> on someone else or on a situation or in the world, you know. Um, so if I... Uh, 
I like to try and keep that in mind and that I have, I have been the villain. <laughs> I can be the villain again. <laughs> and uh, so it's got to be mindful. Uh, one way that has helped me sometimes is to think of the effects of um, the, the ripening effects. Yes. So like, uh, especially with malice, uh, I think um, Gershi Sopas in his book talked about you're born really ugly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that would be an effect, yes. Uh, what about if we just stay away from con- the controversies that we know push our buttons? That would yeah, that helps with the malicious thoughts, I think, yeah. Yes? And I think of the malicious thoughts that come up in my head. I think they, they, origin, they originate in my over-attachment to the importance of my opinions. <laughs> and, and, and I'm attached to them because I'm right, right? <laughs> and I'm just... And the thing is, is that when I lessen that grip, then it helps me to develop more of a sense of equanimity. So when I see somebody that has a bumper sticker on their car that is contrary to me, (laughs) I just have to breathe and go, look, your opinion, don't believe everything that you think all the time. (laughs) Yeah. The next one would be covetousness. That's where you are so attached to something that you scheme in your mind to get it. And we live in a materialistic society. Everybody wants to have the new, latest, greatest gadget. So how can this attitude feed our thoughts and plunge us into trouble? It takes our um, behavior. So it's like we are running after a carrot and... Um, if you don't get the carrot, then you get very miserable. Um, so we are very dependent on on that object and uh, lose ourselves totally. Mm. And what came to my mind right there was the stick coming out the back with the carrot right about here, me going like this, <laughs> keep running after it, running after it. <laughs> it creates habitual energy, like I'm used to shopping and now I can't shop. So... I look at the offerings on the Buddha's table sometimes. Yes, and that's not good. Yeah. yeah. So the wars start with covetedness? War, the wars start with that? No. That would be a major contributing factor, I think. Yeah. They've got something. I want it. I deserve it. How am I going to get it? Well, let's just go and take it. Oil, especially oil, yeah. I've always had this this thought that if the Middle East main export was coconuts, would we be having all of the misery in our world? And if Africa, instead of having diamonds, had um, peanuts, we would have a very different world. So, mm-hmm. and the thing that so the thing about the covetous mind too is that here's this black stuff that comes out of the earth or these little pieces of hard material and the imputation, the conceptuality that imbues these things with a kind of value that they don't have whatsoever from their own, so not even conventionally. I mean, it's totally conceptuality. So the covetousness mind just, it it breathes this kind of over-exaggeration, proliferating, fantasizing about this object. And then after a while, 
there's this you don't see the human beings involved you don't see the you don't see anything but i want it and i want it now and what do i have to do to get it and it doesn't really matter what it takes so a lot of the ethical conduct of all the other virtues just totally get stampeded over when the covetousness mind is out of control so that kind of mind it's insatiable you get that one thing that you want and you're maybe satisfied for a millisecond and then the mind is out looking again for the next thing and it's just an addiction that just grows mm -hmm. exponentially it wastes a lot of time too I'm a practice yeah any spiritual practice mm -hmm. and then when you actually get it then you want something else you go start going after something else you start scheming to get something else okay so the next topic would be yeah we're going backwards <laughs> very good idle talk how do we engage in idle talk or how how does the human race engage in idle talk nowadays very easily yes <laughs> instead of just sitting there talking to somebody what what else would be included in that Facebook, posting what you had for breakfast on Facebook. <laughs> what else? Movies, yeah. What else? Talking about the latest scandals. Talking about the latest scandals. Yeah. Or, yep, gossip magazines or just reading magazines in general. What about going to parties? We don't do that. We don't do that. But it has been known to happen occasionally. Yeah. Television? Twitter? Tea shops. Tea shops? Coffee shops. Starbucks. Starbucks, coffee shops. In moderation connecting with a wish to connect i mean i don't want to just write off everybody who goes to that's starbucks true, yeah. and stuff i mean sometimes it's a great place to connect and if somebody's you know that's if there's a motivation there but generally that's a lot of for me in my life that was a lot of gossip and uh not beneficial mm -hmm. texting yeah what about just reading novels stuff like that it's it's more a way a way of um in my opinion this is just my opinion. Um, you're, if you're reading a book, I'm not necessarily in not a, a non-Buddhist book, a non-Dharma book, then you're wasting time, and it's putting words in your head. If you're reading, you're putting words in your head. It's idle talk in your head. Um, I also think, and I have learned from uh, another teacher of mine, um, that depending on your motivation, um, uh, it is possible to um, read a novel or maybe a krimi. And I haven't done it. I, I don't know. But he said um, uh, that you could, for example, um, then when you read it with a Lamhorn um, understanding, you know, you recognize the suffering and the specific kinds of sufferings and uh, mental afflictions that are working there, you know. Um, when you go through that and with that kind of mind, um, you said it, it's possible that you can get something out of it. I totally agree. Mm -hmm. But however, if you're reading a romance novel just to get a kick, mm -hmm. 
Okay, now you, you would, we got the words, and yeah, you're not having a face-to-face -face conversation, but you are involved in words put, being put in your head just to waste time. I can see your point, but I, I think that it sounds like a little bit like a liberty, taking a liberty with the definition of it's a, it's a verbal uh, non-virtue, right? So the speaking needs to be involved. Reading is something Why? else. Reading is not Why does the speaking need to be involved? Because it's a verbal non-virtue. And, you know, you're, senseless, you're speaking senselessly whether you're hurt or not. That's, that's how, that's the final step that brings that um, non-virtue into completion. So I think if we think about, you know, what's the basis for that action, what's the intention, what's the actual action, the performance, and how do you bring it into completion, then we can really see what falls in that category cleanly without taking the cleanly a comment about that about reading um, there's a great romance novel that I've read Tolstoy's Anna Karenina and that story is I you know it is a romance story but it does help to develop compassion for people who are in difficult situations so it might be a more of a matter of your motivation for reading that and exploring those emotions that oh, yeah. the characters have experienced because you might share some sort of feeling in that regard. So maybe it's a matter of just where you're at in terms of your motivation. It always comes down to your motivation, yes. I'm just wondering if you could expand it to say idle discourse, which would include written communication, because if we're going to include Facebook and texting, those are words that are read. It's not yeah, spoken not, not verbal face-to-face. -face. Yeah. Um, so entertainment, you know, pictures, hmm. if you want to include that. Yeah. Just internet didn't exist at the Buddhist time, so maybe we, would, we could update it by saying nonverbal communication, which would include things like texting. But it, then there's an intention to communicate or intention to speak or an intention to get your point across to somebody which for me is different than reading someone else's words. Maybe. It's a good question to ask venerable children. <laughs> okay, what would be the next one? Harsh words. Now, why is, how is this different from harsh thoughts? Well, the harm can be a fewfold. So the harsh thoughts, sometimes we just proliferate them internally and we're the recipient of that kind of non-virtuous activity. But then when you take those harmful thoughts and put speech behind it, not only are you a recipient of the harm, but also is the person to whom you are, who the object of your harsh speech is towards. So it's a, there's more harm going on than just the harm internally that has no language, no speech to it. Which begs the question, if you put an answer on a wet, on the internet, is it still harsh speech because it's just words? Well, that's where we're... Well, it's thoughts. It's thoughts. But now what we're talking about, if that is a form of communication, even mm -hmm. though it's words and not speech, it, it can still be harsh yes, speech. I agree yeah. totally. Yeah. But the fact that it's out there for somebody else to respond to it and to be hurt or whatever, that's the part that intensifies that. Yes. But it wouldn't happen without the malice. Mm -hmm. What if you're angry and you're mumbling to yourself? 
you're not you're trying to avoid the other person hearing you but you still so where does that fall in between malicious thoughts and harsh speech you're still using your your voice your tongue and um I mean, from the Buddhist perspective, we are always surrounded by beings. We can't see them, so they will hear it. And they could be um, yeah, affected by that. There's an idea. Yeah. Yes. You need the other person to understand that is, there's harshness in this for it to be a complete karma? I don't know. Good question. I remember when I was saying that if you speak harshly with the cats, for example, who can't understand, um, and that is harsh speech. Uh, but I can't remember the reasoning she gave. Where else do we find harsh words in our world today? Radio talk shows. Ooh, yeah. Morning, uh, yeah, TV talk shows. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The news. The news. The political scene, those politicians out there giving speeches. I'm not going to name any names. That's not my job. What about angry words said at home? Where does that lead to? Breaking of trust. Yeah. Feeling safe. Yes, yes, yes. Disharmony. Disharmony, yeah. You lead to violence, yes. And... There are many ways I've read that um, angry, harsh speech. Uh, a little of that can just wipe away a lot of a lot of uh, meritorious work and, and uh, yeah, good mm -hmm. karma. You can just wipe it out quickly yes. by being angry and yep. harsh. Um, also, it can lead to actions, um, physical actions. Mm -hmm. Can lead to physical actions. Yep. Okay. So this has been about ethical conduct. And uh, in my opinion, this is just my little saying, ethical conduct is doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. How would you define ethical conduct? We know the Buddhist dis definition. I want your personal definition. Not inflicting pain on yourself or others. Yep. Hurting my mind. Ooh, I like that one. Being a decent human being. Something that's very much lacking in this world sometimes. A source of joy and many, many good sleep-filled nights. <laughs> and choices that benefit others. Um, I've found it to be a way to reduce massive confusion about what to do and decision-making processes and putting some order and guidance into uh, directing your own life. Mm -hmm. So since we're talking about far-reaching ethical conduct, how about we define far-reaching ethical conduct? When we did this the first time, it was defined as going beyond and practiced with wisdom. What's your definition of it? That I don't speak or act or think ethically only towards certain people but that I encompass all living beings in my purview when I try to be a good human being. Mm -hmm. 
both human, non-human, everybody gets included in my wish to be kind and not harm. One for far-reaching. Sure. Um, I think it's a matter of seeing the extraordinary and the ordinary things that we do in our lives and having the opportunity to do something great. Um, the other day I ordered this part from the Napa Auto Store and they were really busy. There was a line of people out. <laughs> it was really crazy and the poor guy didn't have the part and he was so apologetic for me that he made a mistake and so forth. And I told him, hey, no problem, I'll come back the next day. And I did and he had the part for me and I said, where's your boss? And he says, oh, he's over here. And so I said, can I talk to him for a second? And so this guy's boss came down and I told him, I just want to tell you that this gentleman went above and beyond the call of duty to help me get my part. And I really appreciate his extra effort. I know it's a very crazy time with this holiday season. But I just want to let you know that that guy did a really good job for me. And he was just shocked. And so I thought this is really cool that you could do a little ordinary thing like that. Mm -hmm. But now that guy's going to go home and maybe he'll feel better about himself and then it's kind of like a ripple effect. And it doesn't take any energy or effort and I'm not this great guy or anything. It's just mm -hmm. a little act like that can have far-reaching consequences that we don't, yes. we're not even aware of. Yes. So what are the benefits for us of practicing far-reaching ethical conduct? The Buddhists would say it's the principal cause for getting another precious human life, which I agree with Mm -hmm. What are the benefits, other than the one I just said? What are the benefits in your own words? What are the benefits? Do you, what benefits do you see in doing this practice? For me, is peace of mind. Yes. Peace in the world. I mean, for example, um, having a more an extreme example of a sangha community was keeping the moksha precepts and even the bhikshuni precepts and. Um, trying to develop um, ethical conduct um, within themselves, within the community, and so spreading that um, out into the world. Mm -hmm. I think when you're practicing ethical conduct, people feel more safe around you. Mm -hmm. yes. They just sense that, um, that you're um, guarding your own behavior and you're not judging their behavior because you're so busy guarding your own behavior. <laughs> um, and that... Um, you know, that they see their things are safe, um, you know, their partners are <laughs> safe, <laughs> you know, all the different components of um, behavior that's destructive. It's so how does ethical conduct help establish trust in, in your relationships? Um, I think that folks will begin to understand that when I... that my my actions have a lot of like forth forethought before them that um they're going to trust that what i'm saying what i'm doing is the very very best that i can can do and that they're they're considered when i'm when they have relationship with me i have them in my consideration for what I say and what I do and what I think. So they're in included in how I relate. When you act, act ethically, you are predictable. Yeah. And when we look at someone like His Holiness the Dalai Lama or Venerable Children, 
we have a role model. Mm-hmm. There's something much higher that we can shoot for. So it's just a wonderful, um, it's to be a role model for others is um, a beautiful example of how to live a meaningful life. Mm-hmm. But that I, I think applies to us also, us being a role model. You know, what you did, that's mo- modeling wonderful ethical and far-reaching ethical concept behavior. And hopefully other people see that, even the people that were just, especially the people that you were just involved in, and start spreading it out into the world. So, my next question. Are we living in degenerate times? I got people going like this. How so? I find it very difficult to say um, if maybe in 100,000 years ago... um, the afflictions have been less than nowadays. I mean, who can say that besides um, the Buddha? It, it seems to be a more um, difficult time because we are so many beings who try to live with each other. And um, if there's the same amount of afflictions um, than 100,000 years ago, then it seems to be that there are more conflicts because you can't get out of your way. But um, imagine America being as much, um, um, how to say, uh, um, occupied, I I mean, like Uh in Europe, you know, with so much civilization. Here you have so much land, but if you would live closer, how many more difficulties would there be between the people and beings that are living there? Well, I just, as I've been reading that book of joy, you know, the His Holiness says, you know, that famous conversation with, I think it was the Queen Mother, and he, he asked her, and she said, no. She says, things have gotten better. The world is more open. There's more uh, kindness. There's, I mean, His Holiness says, just think of all the millions and millions of children being loved and put to bed every night with their, by their parents. Think of all the wonderful teachers, all the, the people in the world that are getting fed, all the people in the world that are being cared for in hospitals and by specialists and human rights. You know, what we, and, and, what he, and what he has said is that the reason we're getting all the bad news is because that's not normal. That's the aberration of the human heart. So we're, we're almost kind of horrified in a strange way but he says what happens on the norm every day is far, far more wonderful. But because it's so normal, and we take it for granted, because this is the way the human family lives with itself and lives with other beings, is that we don't notice. So it's the aberrations that come up to the forefront because they're just so unusual for the human heart to experience. I kind of personally feel like we are living in degenerate times. And uh, because I've noticed uh, in my 70 years kind of a a change in ethical awareness um, in the societies in general, that's the downside. The good side is I think that uh, there's more awareness about us being that way. I mean, we're starting to, um, as was mentioned, all the good efforts uh, towards um, people that are needy and people that need housing and and, uh, racial problems. So we're 
starting to, I think, get a greater consciousness about being better people as a society. I think it's a tough time. <laughs> it's not a straightforward thing for me. Like, if, if you look from a Dharma perspective, you know, in the time of the Buddha, he says, ah, and somebody get, gets stream entry, you know, and then now you read books, and so many books, and you still don't understand a single concept. So in that way, it's degenerate. But then on the other hand, the amount of dharma that is available and the number of people that have opportunities to listen to the dharma, it's increasing. Like, you know, you meet so many great masters, and if you, even if you imagine if you're in Tibet, uh, in the olden days where you have to travel so far to get teachings, now you just click the internet and there's so much available. So is mm-hmm. it really degenerate with so much teachings available and so many incredible teachers that can now reach more people and benefit them? Mm-hmm. So what are examples that we have seen recently in the news that grate on our Buddhist principles? Yeah. <laughs> Um, they're investigating Thai monks for their behaviors. I think there was um, some reports of abuse. I hadn't read that one. Yeah, It goes with degenerate times, uh, rolling back environmental protections. So, I mean, the amount of damage that we're causing to the environment now is probably greater than ever before. And mm-hmm. I think that would be a, a good sign of degeneration. Mm-hmm. Next question. What happens when some people try to legislate their version of ethics? What pops to your mind? Oh, one thing that pops to my mind is when people, uh, the abortion issue. Yeah. yeah. Very, we have certain laws in this country, and every time you turn around, the Texas legislature is trying to roll them back. Everybody's trying to roll them back, roll them back, roll them back because of their ethics. The death penalty. Capital punishment, yes in Germany that um, uh, car companies can make a lot of money um, on the cost of the health of people, you know, producing cars that are not safe. Mm. This false notion that there's not enough to go around and that certain people Mm -hmm. get it and certain people don't. And there's something inherently flawed about the people who don't have it. And therefore, they don't deserve it. Guns make us safer. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, I have a question about um, free speech on the Internet. Does anyone have the right or the moral moral obligation to censor harsh and divisive speech on the Internet? What do you think? I think no single person has that kind of moral authority to do that. What about... The, recently, there have been um, like KKK speakers on college campuses, and the college can't say no because they believe in free speech, and yet you have thousands of people protesting on the outside, and you have you know thousands of people on the inside wanting to hear it. How does that make you feel? Brings up a, a, um, a comedian, Tina, a t- comedian named Tina Fey, 
and she had a great antidote for this issue of the free speech and the KKK and, and white supremacists having their speech. She advised all of her fans and everybody who's uproariously angry about this to instead of going down to the place and screaming at them and responding with hatred against the hatred, to go patronize a, a Jewish shop that sells pastries or a black-owned business or a Hispanic-owned <laughs> business and use the power of your consumption, if you will, mm -hmm. to pass a message that you are welcome in our community. You are our community. Yes. And this is how we will creatively confront this negative force that's in our society. I thought she was hilarious. And um, <laughs> God bless the comedians, you know, I mean, they're so wonderful. Mm -hmm. And she went ahead to make a point of this. She ate this huge sheet cake out of an American flag. She just ate it all. <laughs> just shoved it into her face. <laughs> and it was a great moment because everybody's really angry and keyed up about this. Yes. But through, you know, some humor, we can see the wisdom that hatred and anger, if we show that back, all you're doing is just spiraling and escalating an, an uncomfortable situation already. So. Yes. There's clowns in the middle of the street. Clowns. They're dressing up as clowns. They go on the Clowns in the middle of the street. Yeah. Posing uh, white supremacists. Yeah. Okay. Now the last one is headlines. Tell me which um, affliction we're dealing with. Woman pleads guilty to stealing from Arizona school district. Stealing. $75,000. <laughs> That's stealing. So that would be stealing, wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay. Um, prominent Ninth Circuit judge accused of sexual misconduct. Hey, these are actually headlines here from 33 minutes ago. California lawmaker resigns after bathroom sex assault claim. Uber agrees to settle U.S. lawsuit filed by India rape victim. Man dies after shots fired on Seattle Street. Wish I could give you a good one. <laughs> Priest gets life sentence in cold case murder of Texas beauty queen. Sorry. I don't have goodnews.com on this. On my <laughs> no, just just some of the major headline news is like USA News, Guardian. Um, what else I got there? Huffington Post. There is good news out there. And we discussed some of it tonight, you know. People feeding the homeless, uh, housing the homeless, saving wild, saving wild animals from fires. Yeah, there was a recent one of the, the gentleman saving the rabbit from the wildfires in California. The Abbey feeds turkeys and deer. The Abbey feeds turkeys and deers. Yes, we do. We also feed people. Yes, we do. So I guess my last question would be, um, how does living an ethical life help you right now, help this world? It's just something to think about while she's looking for good news. <laughs> Company turns tire scraps into shoes, employs single mothers living in poverty. Yes. yes. When dog chews girl's beloved elf on shelf, hospital works magic with a little help from Santa. I think they did surgery on the little elf. 
London's black cabs go electric. Watchman pull over to rescue rabbit trapped by California fires. Coffee and a muffin at restaurant drive-thru saves a stranger's life. More than 200 nations promise to stop ocean plastic waste. And then the homeless man who used his last $20 to help a stranded woman just yes. bought his own home they, with the $300,000 GoFundMe that he got. Yep. So that's a little bit of a start. So we, we have the 10 non-virtuous actions, but there are also the 10 virtuous actions that go right along with them to help us live an ethical life. And I am done.